Well, hey, Merry Christmas. Man, it feels like Christmas outside too. Well, it did to me. Well, hey, I hope you have your Bibles. If you don't mind grabbing them, open them up to Matthew chapter 7. We are finishing our sermons through the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll pick the Gospel of Matthew back up in 2022 in February. Can you believe 2022 is here? Now, when we open our Bibles to Matthew 7, or your digital device, it's easy to forget the context of which we've been talking through. You think about it, a Jew in that day, they they would have been talking about the coming king. They would have been reviewing verses in the Old Testament about the king who was coming, but also the kingdom of which he was going to establish. So all this time throughout Jewish history, for a thousand years, they've been discussing this this king that was going to be the savior of the world, the lamb that was going to take away the sins of the world. And then all of a sudden, this, this kind of uh, homely-looking guy from Nazareth, kind of a carpenter, kind of rough around the edges, it seems, from the outside appearance, rugged, comes upon the scene, and he comes in chapter 4, verse 17, and he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, and even in the Gospel of Mark, the way the Gospel of Mark begins, Jesus' public ministry is, His public ministry is him saying, hey, today this passage in Isaiah has been fulfilled. Jesus comes onto the scene declaring that he is the king that they've been looking for and declaring that his kingdom is here that they have been waiting for as well. You can imagine that there might be some buzz about that reality. And what's so interesting about Jesus is that he doesn't just give lip service to being the king and establishing his kingdom. He actually comes about, and we learn in verse 23 of chapter 4 of the Gospel of Matthew, we, we learn there that Jesus demonstrates his kingdom and his kingship. He comes up on the scene in verses 23 and following tell us that he goes from town to town. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. And great crowds are surrounding this Jesus. We learn, in fact, Matthew tells us that, that it was like an ant bed that would have been kicked. And there are all these people that had kind of crowded around Jesus. And in verse 1 or 2 of chapter 5, it actually comes to this place where he sits down on a mountain and it says the crowd gathered around him. What's so fascinating about this is that Jesus also has his disciples around him. This is an indication of the reality of Jesus Christ, that wherever Jesus went, typically there were two groups of people. There, were the, there was a crowd, those that had kind of were interested in what he had to say and were curious about the things he was doing and had heard these stories and were just kind of onlookers. But then there was also his disciples. In, in fact, before this had all happened in chapter 4, he had called out disciples to follow him and they had left everything to follow him. So you have, on one hand, Two groups of people around Jesus on a constant basis. You have the disciples, those who had heard his word and were following him. And then you have the crowd. There are always these two distinct groups of people. And you have to remember that Jesus is preaching a sermon. Jesus is preaching a sermon and he's giving us a model for what good gospel preaching is. Good gospel preaching will invite others to respond to the message. And here you have Jesus giving some word pictures, if you will, at the end of his message. It actually begins in chapter 7, verse 13, where he begins to talk about this narrow gate. Then he talks about uh, false teachers. And then he'll talk about how people will come before him and they'll declare that they know him, but he never knew them. Around Jesus are his disciples. 
And around Jesus is the crowd. Now what's so interesting about this is Jesus has laid out the Sermon on the Mount not for the seeker, seeker sensitive. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's preaching to the disciples. He's telling them about his character. He's telling them about what it means to follow Jesus in the spiritual disciplines. He's teaching them on how to be peacemakers and not not going to war all the time. He's, he's teaching them how to be meek and mild. He's, he's teaching them a number of things. He teaches them how to give and how to fast and how to pray. And all along the way, Jesus comes to the end of his message and he's giving an invitation for people to respond because you'll have to find whether you're a disciple or just among the crowd. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 24. And if you're there, will you say word? Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house. Yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them, that's key, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching, he was teaching like the, uh, he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like the scribes. See, in our text, we, we see two builders and we see two foundations. We see a storm and then we see two outcomes. There's two builders that are mentioned in this text. They are building a home. These builders uh, are, are really a, a identifying the disciples, but then also the crowd. Uh, this, these builders are builders who have come and they've heard the word of the Lord. Both of them are builders. See, anytime you hear the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord demands a response. The, the beautiful thing about even today is that you have likely heard hundreds, if not thousands, of sermons. And each one of those sermons demands a response. Uh, some of you have gone to group, or you will leave here and go to a group, or tonight you'll go to a group, and anytime you hear the Word of God, it's going to confront you with something, and it's going to demand a response. Some of you will come here, and then you'll go to a group, and then you'll, you'll go home, and you'll, you'll catch David Jeremiah just to ensure that you got a good sermon today. Uh, some of you will go home, and Listen to David Jeremiah, and then maybe pull up a, maybe a younger contemporary preacher like a Matt Chandler and listen to him just to ensure that you got a word from the Lord because that sermon today was a little subpar. Each of those sermons demands a response. Some of you, before you go to sleep, will open up your Bible and have your quiet time because it's Sunday and you're going to get a little dose of Jesus in the morning so you can delay it till the evening. And even then, when you read the word, it will demand a response. The key that I think Jesus is showing us with these two builders is that everyone is hearing the word of the Lord. The question is what you're going to do with what you've heard. There's two builders. There's going to be the builder who builds like the disciple or the builder who builds just like 
the crowd. But then he gives us another picture. He says there's a foundation that's exposed at some point. Every person is building on something. Now, I want to be clear here, and maybe you've heard it preached differently, and I I just have a different take on this. I do not believe that the reference here when he says the rock, the rock here is not Jesus Christ. Now, you've probably heard it before. You've got to build your house on Jesus. And that's not a bad saying, and it's not untrue. But I would say here in this context, this context, in when, he, when he talks about the rock, he's not referring to Jesus. I think there's one singular thing that Jesus is trying to drive home with these people that are hearing the crowd, but also the disciples. He's saying the rock and the sand, the difference of those two foundations, the faulty versus the firm, is hearing and obeying the word of God, revealing what kind of foundation you have is completely dependent upon what you've heard and whether you have obeyed it or not. See, the foundation, the faulty, the sand, or the firm, the rock, isn't Jesus, but it's what you've done with what you've heard from Jesus. See, the virtue in life is not that you heard a good word. The virtue in life is not that you heard a good message. Oh, how many times. And maybe some of you are blustering when you compliment a sermon. That's fine. We receive good compliments and reject bad compliments. Even a few weeks ago, someone mentioned to me, man, that sermon last Sunday was really good. And I didn't have the courage to say thank you, but I wasn't the one preaching. The key in life is not to receive or hear a good word. The key, I think, in this text is to actually obey the word that you've heard. See, there's two foundations that are revealed in this moment. And that moment is going to tell you everything you need to know. And we all know this. A house is only as good as the foundation that it sits on. But I think the thing that determines what kind of foundation you have is the person who hears And acts upon it. Now then he says something interesting. He he calls and he describes a storm. You see it clearly in the text. He describes not multiple storms, but he describes one storm. You see it clearly there in verses 25 and 27. The description of the rain falling and the rivers rising and the winds blowing and they're pounding the house. That description is the same in both 25 and in 27. There is one storm. Now, There's no doubt that there are difficulties in life. Amen? There are difficulties in life. There are setbacks and trials that come in life, and they often expose the the foundation of your life. I'm not denying that as a reality. In fact, we talked about this some weeks ago when we talked about the narrow gate and the difficult path. That There are sometimes difficult things that we have to endure and go through in life. But here, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus isn't talking about the trials of life, although trials, they will come. I think... Jesus has something completely different in mind when he talks about the storm. It's my opinion that the storm is, and I, come, I get this opinion not just from left field, but from the text, because that's key. My opinion is that this storm is about judgment day. So how do you come to that? Well, I want to show you in verse 24. Uh-oh. Verse 24, I think they can pull it up for me maybe. 
My computer has died. Okay, there it is. Look at verse 24. You see the first word? It says, therefore. Now, you know this in good hermeneutics. What is the therefore? Therefore. All right? What is the therefore? Okay, that, you'll get. The therefore is going to be identifying what is just previous in the text. What has Jesus been talking about since verse 13? He's been talking about those who entered in through the narrow gate, the difficult road, or those who entered in through the wide gate, the easy path. Then he talks about false prophets who've proclaimed things that are not true. Then he's talked about those who stand before Jesus, the judge, and, and, and they say, but Lord, didn't we do all these things for you? And he says, uh, but I never, I never knew you. And so the preceding verses from this verse here in verse 24 is all about the judgment day. So there's one storm that happens, and that storm is that the rain fell, and the rivers rose, and the winds blew, and they pounded the house. Yet the, 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 on one level, the house co- collapsed, and the other house did not collapse. There's one storm. So we know this because there's a therefore. But we also know this because the picture that Jesus gives is actually a borrow from the Old Testament, It's amazing that Jesus affirms the veracity of the Old Testament by referring to it in these word pictures in the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Even the Psalms, there are a statement about a storm. And that storm is the reality of the judgment day, which exposes where you have built your life. I think in part the point that Jesus is trying to get to is that there's people that hear this message that think that they're good because they heard the message, but in reality, they're not good because they have not applied the message. I believe, again, that this storm is the reference to the final day of judgment. Jesus has referenced this. And so we have to begin to ask the question, then what, what is the marker? What is the discernible difference to know if when the wind comes and the rivers rise and the storm is there, what, what will and how can I know what kind of foundation I'm building on today? And I think Jesus has really indicated this to us within our text. And it's simply this, obedience. The single difference between the person who has heard the word and has a solid foundation and heard the word and have a faulty foundation, the the single difference between the two is this one simple word that we find in verse 24, and it's here. They act. They hear the word. You see that in verse 24, and they act on it. But in verse 26, they hear the word, but they do not act on what they have heard. The storm comes And it exposes whether you've just been hearers or if you've been hearers and but also doers of the word. That lands us with two outcomes in life. There's two outcomes that reveal to us in this time because according to Jesus, your eternity is determined by how you hear and respond to the word of God. Why? Because obedience is the distinguishing mark of whether you know Jesus or not. How can that be? Preacher, that sounds like you're preaching a works-based salvation. What kind of church is this? Are you telling me 
that I'm going to get to heaven because of my good works, that's not what I'm doing. I'm not preaching that you enter into heaven because of your good works, but I am preaching that you won't be in heaven without good works. I'm preaching that nobody gets into heaven without displaying their obedience to what God has said. That's what I'm preaching. Those who don't have good works are obviously giving us a sign that they have zero desire to obey the teachings of Jesus. So we feel all kinds of tension when it comes to faith and works. We feel all kinds of tension, because, but, but Jesus never feels that tension. We, all, we want to be really careful that, oh, you're not saved by your works, so it's grace, grace, grace. And it is grace. But because you've been saved, you can't help but obey the things Jesus has commanded you to do. Is that not what Jesus has been doing in chapter 5, in chapter 6, and even here in chapter 7? See, we feel the pressure that of this kind of connection to faith and works, but Jesus feels no pressure at all. He clearly says that the one discernible mark between verses 24 and 27 is the person, or 26, excuse me, is the person who actually obeys the word that he has heard. This is how Jesus ends his sermon. He says, are you gonna, are you gonna do with what you've heard from me? Are you gonna be peacemakers or not? Are you gonna be meek or not? Are you gonna... Do the Beatitudes like I've told you to do about the character of the Christian, the ethics of a Christian? Are you going to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and then all these things will be added? Are you going to seek first his kingdom? Are you going to obey the call to be righteous just like he is righteous? Are you going to hear what he has said and do something about it? Are you just going to hear what he says and go on your merry way? What are you going to do with what Jesus says? See, because here, it's very clear that everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, they'll be the wise man who's built on the firm foundation. So then it bears the question for us this morning, what is obedience? Because if obedience is this marker, then I want to make sure that I am being obedient because I don't want to come to the judgment day and go, oh, the, all this time I thought I was being obedient and yet I built on this sandy soil. Well, I think there's two things that obedience is. Obedience, number one, is a submissive response to the lordship of Jesus. It's a submissive response to the lordship of Jesus. A submissive, nobody likes that word in 2021, a submissive response to the lordship of Jesus. If you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, then you will respond in obedience, submissive obedience to him. Why do I say this? Well, I say this because here's what Jesus says. Everyone who hears these words of mine. You see that? It's a great word to put a, a rectangle around. I don't know. Jesus says, these words are mine. If you're a kid, I'm not, I'm not calling you a kid, but if you're a kid, think about it. And an adult comes to you and, and, and instructs you to stop running in the halls. Or maybe put a bubble in your mouth and hold it. That's a nice way to say, please be quiet. Or to say, hey, don't, don't run on the chairs or don't hang from the chandelier. You know the scenario of which it is. And that adult comes to you and you know there's a 
a little trump card in your back pocket. Because if that adult is not your parent, you can look at them and say, you're not the boss of me. Now, when I was in junior high, that response insulated or instituted or instigated, excuse me, that's the right word I was looking for, this paddle that was wood. And it would be applied to the fattiest part of my body. We can't do that anymore. Therefore, we as adults just have to look at them and go, I'm not the boss of you, but I'm asking you to do this. And they would say, you're not my mom and you're not my dad. Now, notice there's no training school for this from kids. There's not like a recess break where they're doing a PowerPoint presentation on how to respond to those who are not your authority. (laughs) They just have done it. But we know the scenario and we know the situation because that person isn't your parent. Okay, what does this have to do with mine? If Jesus is just a good preacher, and if Jesus is just a good man, and if Jesus is just a nice guy, then he is not the boss. He is not the authority. He's just a random carpenter from Nazareth saying crazy things and people are flocking to him. But if he is, as John 1 says, God in the flesh, if he is, as Paul says in Colossians 1, above all things, through all things, in all things, over all things, if he is, as the writer of Hebrews says, the author and perfecter of our faith, then he is the boss of everything. And therefore, if Jesus says jump, we say, let's go. How high? If Jesus says go, we go. If Jesus says stay, we stay. If Jesus says give, we give. If Jesus says fast, we fast. If Jesus says pray, we pray. This is the response of a disciple who understands that Jesus is the authority. Now, if you shimmy your way this afternoon to say, well, I want to see this throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Good. Read all the way to Matthew chapter 28. And at the end of 28, Jesus says, all what? Authority has been given to me. Go ye therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I commanded you. And lo, I'm going to be with you to the ends of the earth. All, not just some. Not just a little bit, not just 10%, not just 8%, not just 4%. 100% of the authority has been given to Jesus. And obedience is your simple recognition and submission that he is the Lord of heaven and of earth. And your response is to submit and obey whatever he has commanded you to do. I think we've complicated this to one degree or another. In other words, if you say you believe that Jesus is the Lord, but you don't obey Jesus who is Lord, then you do not believe truly that Jesus is Lord. This happens every Sunday all over America. You're told how to respond to the Word of God after you've heard the Word of God and you leave without responding to the word of God, you're basically saying, Jesus, you're not the boss of me. I'm the boss. Now, the reason you don't get into heaven is 
without obedience is because obedience is your submissive response to the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's what demonstrates your faith to the Lord that I'm trusting him because these words are his and I'm going to hear them and then I'm going to act on them. But obedience is also something else. Obedience is our active response to faith in Jesus. Obedience is your active response. So it's a submissive response, but it's also an active response. Submissive response is I believe what you say is right and I submit. But active response is carrying it out, doing those things. He says in verse 24 again, he acts on them. What's the them? The them is the words of Christ. Them is the words of Christ. I'm going to act on them. What's them? Them is the words. The words of Christ is what I'm going to obey. This is the distinction between these two groups. The group that, that hears and obeys is built on the solid rock. The group that hears and does not obey, built on the faulty and sand. They're hearing the words, but they're not acting on them. They're hearing the words, and they are acting on them. Is this not the distinction in verse 26? They don't act on them. They do act on them. Now, here's my fear. We're so committed to preaching salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, that we forget to tell others that you also work. The book of James tells us clearly, don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. You graduated from VBS, you know this. And by the way, that's what good preaching is. Teaching you things you've already known. At Rock Hill, one of our core values is faith that works. Not preaching a salvation that when you do good works, you'll earn salvation. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying at all. Because here's what happens. The saddest thing I think in American Christianity is that we've created a subcategory for people who claim to have salvation but have no discernible fruit of their salvation. They're not obeying what God has clearly told us to do and to say. They're not repenting of their sin. They're not believing the best about another person, not forgiving one another. They're withholding bitterness towards another believer because of some fault that that person had no idea they had done. They're not praying for their enemies. They're not loving those who are different from them. They're running away from people who are different from them. And I get it. It's hard. You know how hard it is to sit across from somebody who hasn't been to church in months, who's not given a dime, Who's, who says, they, man, I've been saved because I, my, my, I got my date in my Bible. I'm carrying around my certificate just to show that I got my certificate of baptism. But can I just tell you, it's so hard to sit across from somebody and say, I know you say all those things, but I see no discernible evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. That is hard. But Jesus makes it clear. There's not a subcategory of those who say, well, he's my Savior, but he's not my Lord yet. There's no, there's no category in the, in the words of Jesus where they say, well, well, they're a Christian, they're just not a disciple yet. If you're a Christian, you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, you may be a bad disciple, which we all started out as bad disciples. I mean, none of us started out as going, got it all figured out, thanks. If that was the case, then there would be no need for Jesus to say, teach them to observe everything that I've commanded you. You wouldn't need it. You walk in active obedience to the things that Jesus has called you to do. This is what a disciple does. 
But we like to create all these subcategories that Jesus has no room for. There are two outcomes in each one of these stories. You're either a disciple or you are part of the crowd. Again, this is why Jesus calls us to make disciples. Because someone who believes in Jesus is going to want to follow him in obedience to the things that he's commanded us to do. Those who actively respond by faith in Jesus, those who submit themselves to him. In each of these stories, as Jesus is wrapping up his sermon, there, there's just these two groups. You think about the great people in the Bible. We all have our favorite stories. But they weren't great because they just believed in Jesus. They weren't great just because they were identified as trusting in Jesus with their words. They were individuals who believed in Jesus, the promise of the Messiah, but they also did things for him. Abraham went. Moses left. Noah built. Paul gave up everything. To follow Jesus. They all did something. They heard the words, they acted on them, and they were wise, and their house was on the rock. You don't get to heaven because of your obedience, but you don't get to heaven without obedience. You don't get to heaven because of your obedience. But you don't get to heaven without obedience. What's so interesting about this text, and let's see if I can, let's go all the way to verse 28. Thanks. The guys are helping me in the back. Notice what Jesus does at the end of his message. It says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. The crowd had seemingly listened to everything that he had to say, starting in chapter 5, then chapter 6, and now here at chapter 7. They listened to Jesus and were amazed at the things that he had to say. That was so good, Jesus. Thank you. In fact, verse 29 says that you teach as one that has more authority than the scribes. Notice in verse 29. Verse 29. There it is. He says, man, you... You preach as if you have authority. Jesus, that was an unbelievable sermon. Wow, I feel good. And Jesus goes, I didn't preach that for you to feel good. I preached that so you would know, are you a disciple or are you part of the crowd? Seemingly, the crowd dissipates and goes on their way. Matthew, I think, is making a point that the crowd is still the crowd. But the disciples are going to go with Jesus and journey with Jesus and follow Jesus and obey Jesus, whatever he has called them to do. The question then bears out for us. Am I part of the crowd? Or am I a disciple of Jesus? See, I don't think many of us have a problem with Jesus. And the word. We like the word. We're grateful for the word. We love preaching and hearing preaching of the word. But it's one thing to, to like that. 
But few of us actually want to apply that. See, we, we'll believe the Bible all the way up to the point till we actually have to obey what he has told us to do. And we'll justify it. And here's how we justify it. And we do this with almost every arena in our life. I'll get to it. I'll start tomorrow. Maybe next week will be the week that it sticks. And that's not the browbeat you this morning. I'm simply pleading with you. Because the last thing we want is somebody to hear a word from the Lord and do nothing with it. To go, man, I'm sure I'm glad my husband was here to hear that. Or, man, I can't wait to forward that to my nephew. He really needs to hear that. When Jesus looks at us, he says, hey, therefore, all of this is like the man who who hears the words of mine and acts on them. He's the wise man who's built his house on the rock. Winds blew, the rain, rivers rose, the rain came. His house remained because it was built on the rock. The unwise person was the person who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them. It's what verse 27 says. He's an unwise. The rains, and the winds, and the rivers all came. That storm came. And it simply exposed the lie you've been telling yourself all of your life. The danger in this message today is that you, you could be somebody who knows all the lingo and all the language of what it means to be a Christian, but there's never been a desire to obey. And when that storm comes on Judgment Day, it'll expose where you've been building your entire life. So the question today is, what, what, is, what has God said to you today? And what are you going to do about it? And then, who are you going to tell about it? See, I think there's great power in accountability. What has God said to you today? What are you going to do about it? Who can you tell? Will you pray with me? Father, we come now. There. There may be a weightiness to what's been said today. Father, my desire is my desire is that if there's somebody here today who's never trusted in you, or somebody online who's never trusted in you, that today would be the day that they say, I've, I've heard the words of Jesus. I've just never actually obeyed them. That, Lord, they'd come under conviction by your Holy Spirit and they would respond this morning to what you have said and called for them to do. Lord, there may be somebody here today that, Father, they, they are, they've been swimming in this religious stream for a long time, but it's all fake and they know it. Deep down in their pit, they know it's all a facade and they're scared to make that 
public because of what others will think. But Lord, we know that on Judgment Day, all of that is not based on what others think. It's based on what you and who you know. So Father, by the power of your Spirit, Spirit, would you convict them of their sin and help them to repent of it and believe in you. But Lord, there are some in our influences, circle of influences that are a burden to us. We are concerned for them. Lord, would you give us an unction, give us a desire to reach out and have those conversations with those we're concerned about. Lord, we lay all this before you because you are our author. You are our perfecter. Today, we want to do what you've called us to do, to respond to you in worship, to follow you with our lives. We ask this in Christ's name.